Hello, I'm Kevin Richard. Gordon Jones's career path has taken some interesting turns from corporate America to a job at Harvard University to an administrative post at Boise State University to now the presidency at the College of Western Idaho, Idaho's largest community college. But Jones says that it was a job before all of those other jobs that really informed his vision for education. I had a chance to sit down and talk to Jones this week about his plans for College of Western Idaho and his view of community colleges in general as two-year schools face a challenging time nationally. Here's our conversation. Well, Gordon, thank you for taking some time out on day 16 on your new job. I appreciate you making some time to talk about your, your move to CWI. And you talked about this last week with, with legislators, and it's such an interesting career path you've taken from the corporate world to Harvard University to Boise State University, now to, to College of Western Idaho. It's, it's a fascinating career track, but it feels like it's a, a bit of a deliberate track, though, too. I mean, kind of talk us through all of that and how it landed you where you are now. Yeah, sure, Kevin. And again, it's a pleasure to be on here, uh, joining you on this podcast. You know, my career, uh, it actually started um, at a rural school. I taught, uh, I taught high school in a mm -hmm. rural setting, uh, math, and like a lot of rural educators. Rural it was in the math. Southwest, right? In, 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 in yeah, North that. Central Arizona. It was a 30,000 acre cattle ranch. Uh, 130 students with a lot of ranch families, Native American, and at the time, the uh, the big city was Phoenix. It's now even bigger. Sure. Had a few kids from there as well. But um, you're right. My career's had me in secondary education to private sector, um, back into higher ed at a variety of levels, the elite level, the sort of um, regional public, and now the community college level. And I would just say there is a theme there that's not randomness. A lot of it is built on two things, I think, probably two key themes. One is um, educationally, my view that um, learning by doing married with classroom time or theory-based learning um, makes for, um, I think, the, the uh, two things. I think the caliber of, of person we want to be, which is, and also the kind of person our society and the social contract we've negotiated with people in, in higher ed, the mm -hmm. idea that coming to get a better life in American public higher ed means not just transformed minds, but also um, transformed lives in the form of jobs or, or careers. The second theme in my career has always been this idea of, I had mentioned in JFAC, no day two or innovation, mm -hmm. the idea that the world is always changing around us and applied to higher ed. I. I our model has been very um, established in the U.S. I think there's been lots of change in subtle ways to it, but at its highest level, um, kind of post-World War II on, um, a lot of, most of what I see changing is tuition levels going up, but it's not clear to me the model itself has really re-energized itself around the idea of what um, our students are asking from us when it comes to public higher ed, the idea that we are a conduit and a nexus for social and economic mobility. And um, that theme of innovation, adapting to the environment is another key core of my career is how do we do that? What is the, what is around the next curve? What should we be embracing rather than resisting? 
in higher ed. And, and so those two themes are my, my career. And I suspect that when you talk about the competitive advantage that community colleges might have, that's the advantage you're talking about, the, the advantage of mobility, uh, adaptability versus uh, you know, what's happening elsewhere in the higher education world. You know, I would say it's a, probably a few things, and this isn't meant to be exhaustive, but um, a, a, adaptability, I think, is just the dynamic of our structure, um, I, I, community colleges. But I, I think that the advantage, of, when I look at the landscape today in higher ed, I would say, again, there's roughly, for the, for the listeners, there's roughly 4,000 higher ed institutions in the United mm-hmm. States. Most people don't realize just how many there are. Even in this industry, I've been in higher ed for a long time. I still hear of schools that I've not heard of before small uh, schools that sit in geographies that maybe we're not living in today. But um, you either want to be, I would argue, really well-known and well-respected and carry the perception that you're worth whatever tuition you charge. Mm -hmm. Think of it as the top 50 or top 100 schools. Or you want to be extremely high value and able to have people convinced that what they're paying you is, is very accessible and you're very focused on outcomes that students ask for. And we know statistically in public higher ed that schools I've been at, roughly 95 or more percent of students do not go directly to grad school. They're looking for something right after their BA. And so for presumably my presumption is that includes jobs. And Mm -hmm. so to me, community colleges are very focused on affordability as it relates to tuition levels. So people may not realize CWI is roughly $3,400 a year for a full-time student. Right. That's a very good value nationally and locally. And then also we're very comfortable with the idea that education leads to employment as a goal. That's not, um, for some universities, folks, that, that needs to be moderated. There's additional qualifications they put to it or how they would frame it, maybe more soft language, a better life. But for us, we're more unabashed about employability with affordability. So I think you wanna be in one of those two, either really really, uh, you know, able to carry an $80,000 a year tuition level and, uh, and a well-known name or be really good value. And I think it probably gets to the question you've been asking your employees for 16 days, the, you know, what's your why for CWI? I think uh, you've probably answered it to a degree. I think you feel like the why for CWI is helping students on a career path. Well, yeah, it's not actually, I mean, I, the, the career path, I don't want to sound too tactical. I, I think the promise of American public higher ed is this idea that anybody can step into a reasonably affordable pathway that can lead to economic and social mobility. I only say employment because I believe that the first step towards having agency in your life is, is being able to provide for yourself. And when you are able to be a civically engaged individual, it usually comes because you have the ability to pay your bills and, and, You've developed yourself. I think most of our careers for people who've worked a long time and maybe been in jobs that have allowed for career growth, which is not everybody, but we would agree that it's allowed us to really develop ourselves. It's a form of personal continued development. And um, so employment is a very tactical thing I will use, but it's really this idea of what's the promise of public higher ed? It's the idea that my grandfather was a the son of a carpenter, and he chose because of a teacher who saw some of his promise in the sciences, he had the ability through higher ed to go pursue a career in the sciences mm-hmm. that I would argue never would have been available without public 
higher ed. And that's the story of so many Americans. It's a challenging time, though, for community colleges nationally and and locally. I mean, we've seen pretty significant drops in enrollment nationally. And even CWI saw those decreases during the pandemic after years of meteoric growth. What's going on there? Is it the economy? Is it pandemic concerns that are keeping students away? Or is there something else going on here? You know, Kevin, I it's one of these things I, I call them. It's a it's a uh, when you think of it through like a data analytics perspective, this term that it's a noisy air quotes, noisy problem. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of variables at work and it's hard to truly isolate any one thing. Um, I don't have the precise answer, and I have yet to read some of my uh, peer community colleges having the precise answer. I think our feeling is you've just called out two that um, are contributing variables, but it's unclear to me yet sort of the degree to which. But certainly, And really unusual variables. I mean, we never had a global pandemic in in a century, and we haven't had a job market quite like this uh, in in recent memory either. And uh, that, to your point, these uh, quote-unquote black swan events of a pandemic married with low unemployment, um, typically um, there are jobs that will pay fairly good wages if you're 18 to 30, often more manual labor, uh, construction industry uh, here in the Valley. Um, and, And that can pull people away from school either temporarily or in some cases longer. But I I do think that community colleges shouldn't be only viewed, and this is my hope for us, is that we're not just viewed through the the degrees or the certifications we do of today, but rather we're a tool for thinking about how we can be affordable education that translates to employment of any kind. You're seeing uh, the rise of substitute credentials. And Kevin, actually, you, you, you heard me seven years ago almost six and a half at city club yes i gave a talk and i talked about the rise of substitute credentials and i could Mm -hmm. go back and probably read much of that script today and a good portion of it's still relevant there is um in in a positive way the Mm -hmm. idea that there are certifications that third-party folks will give that can actually lead to employment that comes alongside academic degrees whether that be an aa or uh, CTE equivalent or the BA and above of four years. And we need to participate more more uh, enthusiastically in that arena. <laughs> I think higher ed overall. This is not just the community college opportunity. Um, and I think we need to think about um, ways in which we can bring that affordability to all different levels of um, employability. Because I come back to our purpose, economic and social mobility for all. And at the community college, we don't and one of the best pride and joys as Americans is we don't celebrate how exclusive we are. We celebrate how inclusive we are. Uh-huh. We take them, we take everyone as long as there's right. a minimum academic qualification. And we love that. But I don't have the answer as to why uh, enrollment um, is where it is today. But I do know that we're always going to be here, door open, and we're aggressively making sure that awareness is there. And if we add additional offerings that might meet people where they're at today to boost from a draftsman to an architect's equivalent, depending on the job, we want to participate and help people. So we're very bullish on the future. But in the moment, you're right. There's an interesting confluence of events that make this an interesting time. And you're in this really 
interesting market, uh, this Treasure Valley market that you've been watching from your vantage point at Boise State, now your new, new position at CWI. What's unique, exciting, challenging about serving this higher education market in terms of either serving the students or the, uh, the business community? Yeah, I think, I, honestly, I think this is such an exciting time for all of us in higher ed. I mean, the two trends um, that I think of is one, well, maybe it's one macro trend that's accelerated by the pandemic, but the idea of globalization being very present in, uh, in Idaho. I mean, this is uh, with the just inflow of people, but also, and I guess the second trend I was referencing is the influence of technology on education. Um, and so when it speaks to Idaho, I think this idea that you're seeing individuals uh, who can live here and work anywhere now, um, that dynamic of uh, remote work. I had a colleague, a uh, friend in the community whose spouse is a K-12 teacher in our communities here in the Treasure Valley, was actually interviewing for an out-of-state job to teach online same all out of state at a coastal salary. And mm-hmm. we see that in the private sector a lot. We hear about people working for Silicon Valley companies or others living in Boise or in Nampa or wherever in the Treasure Valley. But we're seeing that even in the public sector, I'm seeing instances of. And that trend to me, both from an employment standpoint and then also from a um, instructional standpoint, we I, I posed the question to our JPAC legislators saying, um, if you added up all the enrollment in the out-of-state online mm-hmm. higher ed institutions, I know WGU alone publishes, I believe it was 2,000, give or take, maybe north of that now, Idahoans are enrolled at WGU, which for those of you that don't know Western Governors is a 120,000-person national nonprofit online university based in Salt Lake. Mm-hmm. I call it the biggest university most most people have never heard of. Right. Um, ASU, Southern New Hampshire, Purdue Global, these are all players, part of globalization plus technology. They're serving Idaho. Mm-hmm. And the reason that matters and why I get eager for CWI and our other colleges here to participate is because those schools are not nearly as focused on affordability as we are. They're not picking up the phone when legislators or others want to talk because our enrollment will never match that of other states that are much larger populations. And so they're not able to develop localized caring for our stakeholders at an affordability level. So those are trends that I'm excited by because when I think of CWI or community colleges or for that matter of four years, we have affordability in our back pocket. The question is, can we start to behave and serve in ways that can allow our populations, both rural and locally urban, stay where they are, learn at affordable rates, and recognize we're participating in a lot more players than just the university down the street. Mm-hmm. And those are dynamics, globalization and technology, that we ought to all have on our radar and, des- radar and design around. And it raised an interesting question in JFAC the other day, as you were talking about, you know, increasing the online and hybrid programs. It, it then raises the question of how do you balance that against the in-person experience, which is still going to be one of the things that you can offer as a local you know, 
as a local face-to-face institution that has online and hybrid options? Well, 100%. I think that um, any discussion about online I have is built in from an observed potential bias. I guess I'll put it that way. In-person education is phenomenal. It is special when a faculty member can um, share, teach, engage students. It's what I see great opportunities for unstructured spontaneity to break out. Mm -hmm. It's what we all think of if those of us, whether it be in the K-12 arena or in higher ed experiences we've had, that's special. My only comment and why I focus so much on online is two two reasons. One is we can truly reach more people where they're at. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess, secondly, it's um, it can allow us to also um, um, address inequities around access. Mm-hmm. But I also think that it's, if I'm really honest, I think we've had a little bit of a bias against the modality of online. And some people would argue for good reason. They don't believe it's an equivalent modality for quality. I believe that um, we have to be very careful before we go conclude that it is forever inferior or it doesn't have instances where it is an equivalent option. And so I only speak to it because I think we've got to be very careful about dismissing or concluding it's only a niche. And I think the pandemic, quite honestly, has brought a lot of people along recognizing that, wait a minute, this actually isn't as problematic or as much of an issue as I thought. In some cases, I'm seeing some faculty actually say, I, I actually right. see this more clearly. This is not bad. In some cases, it's the type of thing that's taught, offering online as an equivalent, or in some cases, superior modality. Um, and I won't get into all of that right now, but I would just say that um, in-person absolutely is special. It's something we're committed to at CWI, but hybrid, flexible learning, online, these are all part of a continuum. I want us to think with open, honest viewpoints, because so much could be um, expanding on who we serve and how we serve them. Mm-hmm. Because you've got, if we saw anything out of this pandemic, we've seen students at all levels saying, I really want the face-to-face experience. Or on the other hand, you have students saying, you know, online is really the best thing for me, the best fit for my life right now. I mean, there's, look, individual learners have individual learning styles, right? So some of that starts there. It also comes from where people are pragmatically in their life. At CWI, um, as in uh, public access, you know, all access university, we have individuals who have very, you know, they've stepped into adulthood before they've finished post-secondary education. And so life, we all know, uh, I have four kids myself. Life gets pretty complex. Mm-hmm. I can't always be setting aside three hours to drive into a campus to sit in a classroom. So nothing else for some people, it's just the modality they need in order to orchestrate their complicated lives. And um, we all feel quite busy, but the answer is again, um, both and it's not an or, and this is not a zero sum game. I think we can grow educational attainment and help students reach their goals in life um, through either or or both modalities. And one of the biggest funding requests you have right now is a facility. It's the $10 million that would go towards the health sciences uh, project, which has been on the drawing board for CWI 
four years. If that funding comes through, are you ready to go on constructing that? And if so, what are what are students, what is the community going to see when this thing is up and running if, if you get the funding? Sure. Well, first of all, the health sciences is a field um, we've known demographically, we know that as baby boomers age, um, there are baby boomers who are, it's a large cohort. We're looking at some uh, structural cliffs, so to speak, in terms of the demographics in this country. Fewer people will need to serve our baby boomer generation, a wonderful generation in society, but that includes a lot of baby boomers who are working in the healthcare profession. And so while we've seen this coming, that's probably why we've had recognition of it. Um, we also know the pandemic has accelerated the awareness we all have in this community to the need for our healthcare workers. We're seeing a lot of them. I think of people in my life who have shared with me the degree of burnout, the right. degree to which this field was designed to create health and life, not shepherd people to death. And unfortunately, that is a traumatic experience that individuals um, really are having to wrestle with and grapple with their own career choices. Um, for listeners, they may not know, CWI does a lot of preparation for individuals who want to pursue careers in the health field. That includes RN nurses and a number of other sub-RNs, so to speak, medical assistants, CNAs, and other uh, uh, credential roles that help people in this healthcare economy that is going to be needed in this community. Not just baby boomers, not just pandemic, but also a growing state. And the growth that we're seeing mm -hmm. is going to put more demands and so those three variables are ones that we've been calling out and now even more so. So this health sciences building is going to allow us to bring more modern learning environments to uh, fields where we need more people. Mm -hmm. um, just take the RN degree. We, I'm told um, we have six, 75, 75 people qualified who want to move into our uh, RN program, and we don't have seats for them. And um, this new building will allow us to, that's just one example, grow our ability to serve our ecosystem and do it with a learning facility that allows for some of this technology, simulation labs and other um, learning techniques. And lastly, CWI is a very underbuilt out campus, I would share with those listeners. We're 29,000 lives served with one main academic building mm -hmm. and then several other leased properties throughout our county. And that distributed, while that's um, interesting, I do believe that congregating around certain areas, so now students pursuing these medical fields can come to one facility or reduce the number of facilities they have to go to, that can create more congregated learning. So, Kevin, uh, it's $10 million. We're appreciative of the governor putting that into his recommended budget. Um, it's the total building cost will be round numbers. If I round up, is $23 million. And we have already lined up funding that can close that gap. Some of that will be out of our own reserves. Right. But this is not one we're bringing back to our voters in the community. Um, and this is something that if we are able to receive legislative support, we're in a position to act on. And we're excited to step into this. And a project that if it was needed when it was first proposed, when first brought before voters, it's needed even more now. I mean, because of what's happened these past few years. Correct. Yeah. That's correct. Right. Well, I think that covers the, the ground that I wanted to cover right now. I 
suspect we'll be talking again soon and maybe talking about a, a health sciences building uh, sometime after it gets funded, perhaps. Hey, thanks, Kevin. And obviously, I'd love to chat with you anytime. All right. Thank you. Again, that was Gordon Jones, the president of the College of Western Idaho. That's a wrap for the podcast. That's a wrap for this week. It has been another busy week here at Idaho Education News. And if you have not been at the homepage, idahoednews.org, I encourage you to check out several stories that we had this week that you might be interested in. A new report, a really stinging report, came out this week about the condition of state uh, of school buildings around the state. And the report raises some really important questions about the state's oversight role pertaining to school facilities. I take a much closer look at that report. That's my weekly analysis piece. It ran on Thursday. Kyle Fonensteel takes a closer look at the substitute teacher shortage. Blake Jones and I are working overtime over at the State House, keeping track of everything that's happening with the legislature. And I also had another story that ran on Tuesday about Idaho's go on rate. It went down again this past school year. Only 37% of high school graduates went straight to college. That's uh, another decrease. Several of you reached out to me about this story and have asked about demographics, about breakdown by gender. And those are numbers we're waiting for. The state board has not yet released the demographic breakdowns. We've been promised those in the very near future, and I will be following up on that. And I just wanted to thank all of you for reaching out. Good suggestions. We're waiting for those numbers, and we will uh, write about them as soon as we get them. And we'll write about anything else that comes up in terms of education policy and education politics. So the place to go is idahoednews.org. Also follow us on Twitter at idahoednews. We tweet out links to our latest stories, bulletins on breaking news. You can follow us on Facebook and comment on our stories there. And check back here next Friday for another podcast. I'm Kevin Richard. Stay safe and have a good week.